Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the vanishing edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. You should listen to this edition now because who knows whether you're going to be able to listen to it tomorrow. It might disappear into a puff of digital ether. Um, I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello. And I am very excited to tell you all about our special guest, Lee Gallagher. Hi, Felix. Hi, Lee. Lee and I know each other because we appear on Marketplace together every now and then. Uh, You work for Fortune. You have some grand title there. I do. I'm an assistant managing editor there. And more to the point, you are a published author of various books, including a new one, which is called... It's called The Airbnb Story. Ooh, okay. So I have an idea. Let's talk about Airbnb. Let's... What we're going to do is we are going to talk this week about, well, let me give you three numbers. Um, These are digital revenue numbers. We're going to talk about a company with $400 million of digital revenue last year. And then we're going to talk about a company which had $1.7 billion of digital revenue last year. And then we're going to talk about a company which had $500 million of digital revenue last year. So that's the... That's the, um, the through line. That's the through line. That's the plan. And, what, and I will tell you right now that the three companies are Airbnb, The New York Times, and Snap. And so um, what we need to work out is which is which. <laughs> um yeah, let's start with um, Snapchat or uh, Snap, as, Snap. as they have renamed themselves. They're, they're actually called Snap. Um, thank you, Jordan. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I had to be it. done. It, yeah. Um, so, so Snap, um, Jordan. Yes. Um, is it the four hundred million? Is it the one point seven billion, or is it the five hundred million? Um, I should know this. I think it's the, (laughs) I think I was looking more at like the amount of cash they were burning, frankly, than the amount of uh, revenue they were making. But I think I'm going to go with the 500 million. Yes. I'm going to go with the 400 million. Um, Lee wins. Okay. Snap Snap had actually less digital revenue last year than the New York Times, but they are going public at a market capitalization of somewhere in the $20 billion range compared to the New York Times' 
$2.5 billion. And, and yet they're also burning money more terribly than the New York Times, too, right now. Yeah, this they, is... they contrived on the, they, they made $400 million. Well, so they had $400 million of revenue last year. Um, but somehow they contrived to lose more than $500 million. So yes. they were like spending twice as much money as and, they were taking in. The thing with Snap is it seems like no one is really clear on how they're losing the money. Like a lot of uh, tech, young tech companies, people are very clear on how they are losing the money, how they're burning it. And it seems like there's just like a lot of bafflement over where Snap's money is actually going. They have this big like general set, like general and administrative section. Yeah, their S- their GNA expenses were more than their sales and marketing expenses and 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 almost as much as their engineering yeah. expenses. It was a lot. It was a lot for something that should be minor. So that was administrative. The, the, I mean, it, it's kind of a grab bag category. It's everything from your legal expenses to your CEO to literally ad- administrative like back office costs. It's it's that's why no one knows what's in it. That it's this huge expense and it's kind of it's kind of murky. Although the although the really big expense um, is the cloud. Yeah, they pay. They signed. They 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 have signed three billion dollars. They have promised to pay. Google and Amazon between them, um, $3 billion over the next five years. So $2 billion to Google and another billion dollar to Amazon just to host this vast amount of video because they are that one of the largest online video companies out there, if yeah. you think about it, just to host all of that video because they don't want to host it themselves. And that's their big expense. Well, but the, I think it would be interesting to see that number in context, both to against what they would have had to spend on server infrastructure and oh, data yeah, warehouses, what would definitely. that number be? That's a pretty big number, though. And compared to other, com- I mean, Airbnb exists in the cloud also. These companies were formed after Amazon Web Services which was created, so they never had to deal with all that stuff. So. Right. And this, But this is the big difference. There are two big uh, companies based on Amazon Web, web Services. Like, as you say, like every major startup is, is built on and AWS why wouldn't these they? days. Why wouldn't they? I mean, um, yeah. But like the cost of AWS for a company like Airbnb is de minimis, frankly. I mean, you can host a website without it costing that much money. Where it really starts becoming expensive is when you're streaming a huge quantity of video, um, which is why that's a major expense for Snap and for Netflix more than anyone else. Right, so you wonder how much would it be if they did bring it in-house and did it It would, it it would almost certainly cost more. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons they outsource these things is because Amazon and Google are much better at that kind of thing than, than anyone else would be trying to do it from scratch. But it does kind of remind us that, that even though we live in this world where we all get streaming video to our phones and it's magical and we can watch clips and all of the rest of it that is not free people are paying mm-hmm. substantial amounts of money and in snap's case billions of dollars for for us to be able to enjoy that video so i i kind of want to go like big picture big snap for a moment here about like you have the, this company right this this money losing you know very hot tech company it's supposed to be the way that advertisers are going to get to young people because no one under 25 understands snapchat or knows how to use it really properly but the under 25 said that's they're you know religiously devoted to it i think like i think they said like they spend like 30 the users spend like 30 minutes a day on it on average um and so at the same time they have this like you know fairly large but not huge audience it's very devoted that they haven't been able to figure out how to make money on yet and they're going to ipo and it seems like people think this is kind of a throwback Right. Because like we've talked for so long on this show about how companies have been avoiding going to IPO at all costs for like like Ubers of the world just will not go to IPO. They want to get to a point where they're either making money or just 
continue along with private or for private venture funding for so long as they can. Now you have a company like Snap that is sort of doing something that's almost like pre-Facebook-ish, that they're, they aren't really in a sound place, but they think that they'll somehow be able to turn this audience into something valuable, and they're hoping the public markets will pay for it. So I think what, what we're looking at here is simply a question of valuation. Yeah. Um, the Snap's last venture round, I think it was Series F, uh, was at a roughly $20 billion valuation, which is more or less where they're going to IPO. Um, what you really don't want to do is IPO at a lower level than your last round. Or, you know, what you want to do is you want to IPO in terms of like giving your investors the ability to start exiting and making lots of money, which yeah. is kind of the reason why they invested in you in the first place. Um, they want that ability to exit and they want that ability to exit not when you're the most profitable, but rather when you have the highest valuation. And so if they think that now is the highest valuation or more to the point that like their compound annual return will start going down if they wait longer, then it makes sense to do it now. So right. they have like a ripe, they are a ripe peach sitting on the tree of the IPO tree to be plucked. And, right and, now. Or, or the way Felix <laughs> is explaining it, yeah. they're at a peak. I yeah. mean, you know, that's the real thing. And, I mean, and in fact, yeah, you know, it might go down or it might just go up more slowly in future. Right. But like, well, yeah, it's already but, starting to slow a little but bit. But look at someone like Twitter, you know, yeah. they, they went, they, they had their IPO and, and all of their investors went, oh my God, we've made lots of money. And then the stock price just slowly kind of eroded. Well, but they, they also had a lot. Well, they had about 300 million in revenue right before they went public. And I mean, if you compare to Facebook, Facebook had three, almost $4 billion before they went public. They were much bigger and they had almost 500 million users, users already. So uh, they, wait, they waited, you know, they were a little bit more mature when they went public than Twitter I, or Snapchat. I do think that Snapchat has a lot of promise in terms of brand advertising. I think that in general, most of the ads that we see on Facebook and Google are basically direct response ads, a bit like, you know, the ads on Slate Money, frankly, you know, it's like, here's a product by this product. Um, you know, here's a call to action, do this thing. And what you don't see so much online is just general, like, you know, the kind of advertising you see on the Super Bowl, right? Just like trying to increase general awareness of your brand or the kind of ads that you see in, in magazines, in glossy magazines, or more generally the kind of ads that you see in on television, right? So the classic example being something like CPG, com consumer packaged goods, right? Like toothpaste. You know, you don't see ads for toothpaste online, but you do see ads for toothpaste on television. And as your media consumption moves, you know, generationally from TV to things like Snapchat, and as Snapchat provides exactly the same kind of immersive experience that TV does, so you're watching it and you're sitting through like videos, I think you'll definitely, I think it's, it's almost certain that companies like Snapchat are going to be seeing a huge amount of brand advertising. The question, of course, is whether Snapchat itself will get that or whether it will all wind up in, in the you know, Facebooks and Googles anyway. I think so. I think the key thing to see for Snapchat is what its next year revenue will be because the revenue grew something like sevenfold. I mean, it was like 50-something million it's up to that 400. It's very easy to, to, so, to grow sevenfold when you're coming from a tiny base. Right, but yeah, what does that look like next year? I think that's the key thing. Can it sustain this? And how, and, but also the other thing, if they're raising $2 billion, which they're likely to raise in this IPO, 
that's going to give them a lot of runway to be able to lose $500 million a year mm -hmm. for like the next four years before they need to really worry about being profitable. They have a space to be able to work this out. Yeah, they're not alone in, in not having turned a profit yet. I mean, <laughs> not by a long shot. We're about to talk about another company which has not turned a profit yet. Um, are, we, are we moving on to that company? Or I, I are, think, we, are, we letting, we are we it letting depends. Snapchat dissolve, vanish? Wait, or let's, <laughs> let's, let's let well, Snapchat just disappear. <laughs> After 24 hours, um, <laughs> you will never think about Snapchat again, at least until the actual IPO, which is going to happen soon-ish. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So, Lee. Yes. Um, I, actually, this is not true. The Airbnb is, is making money. It's a it profitable company. It turned its first profit last year, defined by EBITDA. So EBITDA means the, its profit before various expenses which we try to sort of la 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 I can't hear you ignore right I mean you know EBITDA w whether and when to use EBITDA is a topic of much discussion I mean I was always trained as a when I started out in financial journalism that you always want to look at net uh, certain industries go by EBITDA as you know and in this case I mean it is so what you know, does EBITDA stand for Lee? <laughs> earnings before earnings interest. before interest taxes depreciation and amortization and does Airbnb have much in the way of taxes and depreciation and interest. Does I mean, it have they debt? do. They do. I, we just don't know what those numbers are. I mean, it's and presumably, if they were making money in a sort of making money sense, they would let that be known rather than sort of. Well, saying, they're not. Th this is all according to sources close to the company. They're not letting any of this be known. I mean, they're still very private. But I, you know, in my book, I had sources who were close to the company who you know were. I trust completely and and shared those numbers with me and those numbers have been shared elsewhere also. And and Airbnb is the outlier of, of the three companies we're talking about here. Um, it doesn't have 400 million. It doesn't have 500 million. It had $1.7 billion in revenue mm -hmm. last year. And that's going up to what 2.8 billion this year yeah i had a piece for fortune this week that that and, and these numbers are in the book i mean this company this is a is a much bigger company than i think most people realize and a much more profitable company than most people and realize. that's not the total amount of money that people are spending on no, airbnb that's, that's their just revenue their cut and they collect six to twelve percent from the traveler and three percent from the host so that that is their revenue and that is what's so what that means up. is that if their cut was 1.7 billion last year then the total amount spent on their platform was what 10 times yeah. that an order of magnitude yeah. larger. Yeah, many, many times that. I mean, it, it's, yeah, yeah and, but that's, I mean, you have, you know, the number of users on Airbnb is, this is why I wanted to write a book about it. It's become a sort of social and cultural phenomenon. You know, they've had 160 million sort of trips taken is the way they define it 
cumulatively. Okay, so but those this numbers is, are still doubling every year. This is which a fa- is also so I find Airbnb to be a really fascinating um, company, and I have a bunch of questions yeah. which I have for you, oh, like great. from, from reading that. your book. Um, okay, so the first question is: I've heard two different theories about what helped. Airbnb become like the sort of phenomenon that it it it, it is. Um, one is all based on trust that somehow the reason that this never took off in the past was that no one had really cracked the nut of being able to pe- have people trust that the people staying in their home wouldn't trash it, um, and the Airbnb managed to do various sort of Facebook integrations and stuff, which really kind of they cracked that nut in a minute. You cracked that nut, it became this sort of floodgate um the other theory which i've heard is just price really that people found that they were able to travel to places for much longer and much cheaper because airbnb is cheaper than the alternatives which have historically been hotels um do you come down on one side or the I, other i hate on that to one? say this but both are true i will tell you so yeah trust is a big part of it but I, it's not the only thing it's it's not it's not like we could have done this, but we didn't trust anyone before. You really couldn't have done this on this scale. You never could go to any city before and say, I want to choose from, you know, 40,000 different individual homes, many of which actually look quite appealing, even if I'm a high-end traveler. And, and yeah, trust, you, you know that it's, it's, it's you know, going to be safe. So what, and how do you well, know that? Relatively. And how did, how did Airbnb, unlike its competitors, managed to... Let get people to trust this thing. Well, a couple things. I mean, number one, number a, a big difference is that those other companies. You know, when I first heard about Airbnb many years ago, I rolled my eyes because I said, "There's this is like a classic tech company thinking it can reissue an old idea to the marketplace and with a snazzy new website and and do something different." It really was different. One of the big things that was different that isn't talked about much is that those other sites, whether it's HomeAway or VRBO, they were vacation rental companies. They were located primarily in beach towns or mountain towns. It was where you booked your summer vacation or your winter vacation. Right. And it was often second homes. Yeah, it was second homes. And it was easy. People feel less, fewer qualms about renting out their second home than their first, right? Yes, but not even just that, but it's just a much different market. When you're talking about opening up one and two bedroom apartments in cities around the world, you're speaking to a different kind of traveler. It spoke especially to the millennial traveler, which is what glommed onto this first. Okay, so but, so, but coming back to this mm-hmm. trust question, yes. like, are you saying that um, millennials are more trusting or that first homes uh, make it easier to trust? Where, what Where did does Airbnb to okay. do to commoditize that trust? Yeah, a couple things. Number one, it was the design of the website. They created these kind of two-sided review system where, you know, this is a natural checks and balances system that is supposed to keep everybody honest. The truth is there's a little bit of great inflation and, it, you know, it, 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 it that things can always fall through the cracks. It's a public platform. But that was a very big It was a thing little bit like, like the eBay ratings. Yeah, that it was when exactly When you get a like high that. rating. So that, that was smart. Yeah, except for you're going into someone's home, so you might want to pay even more attention exactly. to it. And you're sleeping, you know, it, whether, you know, if you're sharing the space with someone, which is how the company started. And then the other thing which you just said, which was, which was, I think, absolutely key, is that you said design. Um, and this is actually, uh, I would say, most of the value of Snapchat as well comes down to just little 
tweaks of product design, which it just, you know, lots of people might try and do this, but they just did it in a better designed way. And the founders of Airbnb famously did not come out of Stanford. They came out of RISD. They came out of a design school. Right, which is why no one wanted to touch them. But, you know, design wasn't just the look of it, though. It was also the fact that you could have payments right there. They were absolutely emphatic about that. You have to be able to have payments uh, on this platform. And the other sites, VRBO or HomeAway or whoever, uh, they they were basically like a classified ad. I mean, you you paid right. a fee, you know. And then the, the business model is also different. They Those other sites were not taking a fee of the booking. They were just pay us an annual fee and you can advertise on this site. And, this, so that and, was very and I think that's also key is that Airbnb just managed to squeeze in before companies like Stripe completely commoditized the payments layer. And so... I, you know, they managed to solve that problem before it was solved for everyone. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, also just hindsight being twenty twenty, in a way, it's not surprising that a a well designed site that allowed broke millennials right after the Great Recession mm-hmm. to travel somewhere. Yeah. I mean, that's also absolutely. Just I mean, yeah, Felix I mean, mentioned the price. The, I mean, that is not is to be underestimated. Uh, the price is uh, you know many yeah. polls like you know will find that that is the single biggest reason people people try Airbnb on both sides. And then you also have people, it was the Great Recession. Uh, so people needed a cheap way to travel, especially millennials. And also, uh, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons why millennials like it as well. But also on the hosting side, people were, you know, Airbnb really makes a big deal about this, about how they're saving the middle cl- class. But, you know, it a lot of people started doing it because they needed to do it and then, and then liked doing it. Okay, so, so I have two well, questions about price mm-hmm. because this is late money. Um, and the first question is, how do people set the price of their apartments? And then the second question is, is Airbnb really cheaper than hotels? Because I've seen some articles saying that it's, it's certainly in some cities it isn't. Well, it really depends. I'll answer your first question first. Pricing is they have come up with a lot of tools that you can use as a host. They have a whole pricing, smart pricing system internally at Airbnb now that you can use. And it really factors in when events are coming to your town. It factors in what uh, when and that's really when Airbnb is um, very useful and very threatening to the hotel companies. But um, there are also there's this whole cottage industry of Airbnb kind of bolt on companies out there now. So there are a couple, you know, there are outside companies that will also help you with your pricing as well. So there's a whole lot of support for you. And one thing that has happened is the supply of Airbnb has gone up in certain markets. You know, some hosts complain, like my pricing is, you know, there's there's so many people doing it now that, you know, my pri- it's hard to get keep my prices up. So that's, you know. So I, I have kind of a, a forward-looking question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in your book, you talk a lot about this tension with Airbnb about, you know, the mom and pops who just rent out their, their apartment or their room and the essentially commercial the, the kind of clandestine commercial mm-hmm. uh, users who are running four or five uh, apartments and they're more or less operating a secret hotel. And this has been the constant regulatory battle in cities like San Francisco or New York where people are worried about housing. And I guess my question is for this company, which also has a really big valuation and is booming business, is it going to be able to, I guess, make good on that valuation? Is it going to be able to profitable as its investors hope without those clandestine commercial operators like are they really key to its future it does it have to basically be a fake hotel business or can they actually kind of rein that in 
and be the middle class, you know, mom and pop based business they kind of portray themselves as and still be profitable like they want to be? That's a great question. I mean, they have reined that in a lot, especially in those hypersensitive markets like New York and San Francisco. They have kicked off a lot of those listings. A lot of those listings, the major, major ones also just kind of saw the writing on the wall and have gone to other sites. There are still people, uh, you know, renting three, four, five, maybe more uh, places in those cities. And they're cool with that. No, well, they say they're, they're not, not cool with that. Yeah, okay. That's the big question. They say they're not cool with that, they, but what they're looking for is is places that don't reflect their mission. I mean, it's important that, you know, what people seem to want on Airbnb is this kind of hostiness. I mean, a little bit of it, they do want it. So if you rent a place on Airbnb and it looks and feels like a corporate hotel, it's not It's not good. So even the commercial entrepreneurial people are sort of playing by the onesie. So can I, I need to come in here because yeah. this is one of the few nonfiction books where I actually like laughed out loud in the middle of reading it. <laughs> and I, need, I just want to read this one paragraph which made me laugh because it's absolutely on this point, which, is, which says, so Airbnb is really big on this like friendly branding and they came up with this mission, um, which anyway, I, so... In the mission, they they hired this guy called Doug Atkin, who who like went out and vast expense, you know, traveled around the world and came back with two words. And he said, the words belong anywhere. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. Your words are great. And they they rearchitected the entire company around this this this, this slogan of belong anywhere. And then you write this, which is my favorite paragraph in the whole book. In November 2014, four months after the company launched Belong Anywhere as its mission, Chesky, this is the CEO, went back back to Douglas Atkin. He said that he loved Belong Anywhere, and he truly felt it would be the company's mission for the next hundred years. But he still had some pressing questions. What does it actually mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. this is classic, right? Yeah, yeah. But but look, I mean, I was I was very skeptical of the whole belong anywhere when it first launched. I thought, you know, people just want a, a cheap and kind of interesting place to stay. But this is a humongous part of what this company sees itself as about. And it, it is um, you know, the people who work there. You know, I asked Brian Chesky at one point, I said, so what are your what are your goals? Like, what really are your goals for 2020? You know, what are your metrics that you actually watch? He says, Well, what we're most concerned with is how many people can belong anywhere. You know, it just it, this is the, it answers every question. About He's the, super on message. Well, he believes it. He really believes it. And actually, the more I looked into this and I talked to people who are not necessarily, you know, Kool-Aid drinkers, but just people who have studied this company. And, uh, you know, this really is what it's about. And this is one of the reasons that it has taken off. I mean, there are a lot of intangible reasons why it's taken off. I mean, you know, price is one, but also and millennials is another. Yeah. Uh, millennials who think nothing of trusting someone they've only met digitally, which is a big part of it. But also this notion that like our society's become so separate. You know, people are tired of staying in a sterile corporate hotel room. They want to stay some. They Frankly, want a little more I think, connection. I think it's mostly just washer dryers. People just really like being I, able to do their laundry. I, when I, I, do you mean that metaphor? Uh, no. <laughs> so, so here, uh, kind of coming back to the commercial operator, mm-hmm. but also speaking to this whole like. Yeah, I didn't totally thing. answer that question. Yeah. Yet. Well, so here, here's why I have a little bit of. Uh, trouble fully buying their line about it. And I'm speaking as a millennial who travels almost exclusively on Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Like I I very much like this service. And I've used both ends. I've stayed with like couples in Cambridge who made me coffee in the morning and with people who are basically just running a hotel in like Mm -hmm. Portugal. Um, But like, you know, if you go onto the site and you just start looking around, like if you just type in Paris, their biggest market, right? Mm -hmm. And you just start looking at some of the popular neighborhoods, the Marais, 
it is easy to find the people who are running like multiple listings. Some are good and kind of hide it, mm-hmm. but others, it takes 15, 20 minutes of legwork and you can kind of figure out who's got a little chain going. And so this is, if I can do it, like, you know, Jordan Weissman, not even really putting his reporter skills to work, literally <laughs> just like on his couch at one in the morning trying to book his vacation. God knows someone paid full time to do it would also be able mm-hmm. to. So this is this is why I have a little bit of, I just like, I have a hard time fully i have a hard time believing they're they're branded let's put it that way well but they're not saying that <laughs> they don't they're, they're not saying that they line. don't have any of them they're yeah. definitely not i mean i you know brian chesky he likes that there are entrepreneurs on this site yeah. and it depends on the market i mean in housing constrained markets like new york and san francisco i think they would pay a lot more attention to that and this was a big point of debate you know so the hotel companies say i mean airbnb has said we don't interview everyone who goes on the site we don't always know who's there and the hotel companies say that's BS. You know, you yeah. could look in the back. And we, they, the hotel companies have people looking. And, you know, but I did speak to one uh, real, you know, one expert, the CEO of AirDNA, which is a data firm that now all the banks use to get his Airbnb data from. And he was a host who got in trouble for hosting because he had six or seven listings in Santa Monica. But he said, you know, it's very easy to write your way around, you know, it's very easy to hide. He, he said it is very, very easy to, you know, get behind the system, even if they were to try to enforce that more. And, is, and I guess my question is, is that a problem? Like, to, to, what, is it, to what extent is it important for Airbnb to not have multiple listings? Or is it really only in a few places like New York and Reykjavik where people care about this? Well, I think it's important in two ways. It's important in those sensitive markets, definitely. But it's also important for the brand and the products it's the product it's delivering. You know, I mean, the millennial who likes Airbnb, I I don't know, you, you can't take that corporate stuff too far in that direction. Otherwise, you seem like a hotel company. And and you don't have that sense of belonging, you know? Now, does I mean, of course, that stuff is out there, but I don't know. It's funny. I mean, I've used Airbnb a lot in my research for this book, just going in and just plain old booking with no agenda. I didn't, I did, you know, most of everything I booked was like a onesie, and I wasn't trying for that. So that's a very there's, small there's sample. A, sale. I did more research than that, but. but Great word which you use uh, from one of the VCs who invested in Airbnb who called it an anti commodity. Yeah, that was Reed Hoffman. Yeah. And and that's a big reason why people like it. It's unique. It's like, you know, we're so obsessed with everything artisanal, you know, from our chocolates to our pickles, whatever. Well, you know, especially the younger generation wants that in their hotel rooms. I mean, they don't want the cookie cutter experience. And, you know, Airbnb really pushes this live like a local thing. But that is one of the most kind of unique things about it that you can stay in you know, the narrow, beautiful streets of Georgetown on that street rather than on the arterial road where the very nice hotel is. I mean, it's you get access to places you just wouldn't otherwise have access to. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Jordan. 
Yes. We're going to we're going to do the the one in the middle here, the one with 500 million dollars of digital revenue, which is more than Fox Media, more than BuzzFeed, more than Vice. It's um kind of surprising that like this hugely successful digital company is the New York Times. So how did that happen? What's going on there? So the New York Times is well, like like everyone at media, but like in a transition point, and they're kind of fighting this this really running this really you know frightening race where their their print advertising is declining, it's falling rapidly, and they're trying to make up for it with a combination of online advertising, which is a brutal, horrible game, especially it just it's it's really hard to to make a profit off that, and then also digital subscriptions, and we've all probably you may have heard about how digital subscriptions got this huge bump after uh, after Donald Trump. Uh, for, you know, I was elected, people suddenly felt compelled to pay for their news finally as kind of like a support, you know, the fourth estate type thing. Um, and there's always this question of like, how well can a subscription model work? And I, I found this really interesting paper that came out this week that at least spoke, you know, generally well to, to kind of what the New York Times is doing. And so what they, a few years ago, what they did was they went and finally put down a paywall, right? They gave you a limited number of articles you could, you could read each month. First, it was 20, and then they eventually lowered it to 10. And then eventually you had to pay, right? Um, and the idea was to finally just make people subscribe to the damn you know site, to the newspaper. And the fear was that that was going to also chase off, that was going to decrease the amount of digital advertising revenue, which was really precious, and they wouldn't get as many visitors to the site. And so there's always been this question of, you know, what's the balance? How much are you making in uh, subscription revenue? versus how much are you losing in advertising, right? Because you need both of these things to make up for all the declining print revenue. So this new economics paper just came out that's really kind of cool, which tried to figure out this question. Essentially, what they did was they went and they compared the New York Times to the Washington Post and USA Today's performance, and they did a bunch of equations and yada, 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 regressions. Don't need to get into the details of that. What they found was that for every $1 of new subscription revenue, they only lost about 13 cents in advertising, online advertising revenue. But then also this interesting thing happened where essentially putting on the paywall preserved print subscriptions. It got people to continue subscribing to that because they couldn't get it for free online. And so that had a knock-on effect where it preserved some of their print advertising. Well, that was really one of the main reasons why they implemented the paywall in the first place was as a way of stopping people from giving up their print subscriptions because they had this policy, and I doubt, I doubt this policy will ever change, that if you have a print subscription, then you get full access to the digital site for free and or for just for the price of your print subscription. And actually, when they launched, this is not true anymore, but when they launched, uh, some print subscriptions, you know, if you just got the Sunday paper, were actually cheaper than the pure digital subscription because they were making so much money from those print ads that they actually preferred you to have a slightly cheaper print subscription and um, also get all of that money from print ads. Yeah, and so, you know, the idea here is their their basic strategy here was sound, right? Like they made the right call. They may have made it even like too late. Perhaps this is something they should have done years before. But at the same time, so, okay, they have the right strategy. The question is, and I think it's kind of terrifying everyone, is, is it going to be enough? Are they going to be able, is the New York Times or anybody else going to be able to make back enough money doing what they're doing now to make up for this rapidly declining print advertising budget? And, you know, to give you a sense, you know, digital subscriptions are $63.7 million. That's all their digital subscriptions. That's still less than they get in print ads in a quarter. So, and the 
it just like I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, you guys are in this, but it, this kind of affects all of us. Right. Like they are sort of the they, they if the New York Times can't make it, nobody can. I guess that's sort of what we all feel like. So, I mean, this is kind of the fear. It's on the one hand, they they are doing they appear to have found the right model. On the other hand, there is no it is unclear if that the right model is enough to save them. Well, I think it. I think you have to look at the trend lines, right? That's sixty three point seven million pills in comparison to the print still. But you have to look at the. I mean, I'm holding up my elbows in a big X here. <laughs> yeah. It's like you know, this is the trend for the print, and this is the trend yeah, for the digital. I, that, so it's all about the crossover that's, point. That's exactly the elusive crossover point. That's exactly the the point. Is that everyone knows that at some point print is going to go to zero, right? At some point, they are going to stop printing. No one knows when that's going to be, but it's inevitable at some point, and. When print goes to zero, they actually get a huge financial benefit from that because the physical, the cost of physically printing and distributing the New York Times is enormous. It costs billions of dollars. They spent literally billions of dollars on new printing presses and that kind of stuff. So it's the our mi- equivalent of Amazon Web Services. So the minute, <laughs> so the minute that you stop printing and distributing the New York Times, you get this huge dividend, and yeah. that will help. Um, and then and. They're going to continue to print and distribute the New York Times for many years to come. So they have, they get to rely on that print revenue for as long as it exists. And then when they no longer need that crutch, they can drop it off behind them. And then they get the benefit of no longer having to pay all of the expenses of printing and distributing. And at that point, with any luck, the, um, Digital subscription revenue will be multiples of what it is today. The CEO of the New York Times, Mark Thompson, has said that he wants 10 million digital subscribers. And, you know, it's a stretch goal. They're nowhere near that now. But I, th- it, in principle, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to achieve that. I would also love to see some changes, and this study mentions this a little bit, in terms of just the quality of the engagement of the online reader and just being able to distinguish between a casual reader and a really engaged one and charge better targeted ad rates for those people so that there's more of a reflection of quality. The the, the FT does this very well because they have a huge amount of data about their readers. And so once you're logged in, in order to be able to read the FT, they can really serve you up very targeted ads, which have extremely and very expensive ads. Um, The New York Times does this less well when you're logged into the New York Times, the ads you see are not particularly targeted to you. So that's a little bit of uh, opportunity they have there. Um, And the other big question, though, which I have is that beyond the financial subscriptions, which are often expensed, the Wall Street Journal and the FT, and the New York Times, which is in many ways sui generis, it's kind of the only paper which has got anything like this kind of amount of subscription revenue. If you look at the news business more generally, I think that the New York Times always has been kind of unique, is kind of unique, and that other news organizations really can't look to it as a model. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should sort of remember what I said. If the New York, you know, saying if the New York Times can't make it, nobody can. It, just because it's the entirely, New York Times... Yeah, pop, exactly. Exactly. Just because they can make it doesn't mean anybody else can. You know, yeah. And, and it's also since the New York Times is drawing its subscriptions from across the entire country in a way... The it, world. It, the world, yeah. It, it's drawing from the pool that the San Francisco you know, Chronicle could theoretically be drawing from as well or that you know the milwaukee journal sentinel could but they're not but they're not global i mean i feel like the only other entity which is even beginning to try and get that kind of global um subscription support is the guardian 
possibly also the Washington Post is, is doing something interesting where they're almost more trying to push out what USA Today used to be in some ways, like the, the digitally not I mean, not in terms of like quality of journalism, but or approach to it, but in terms of just being a lower cost subscription model and having some tie ins with Amazon Prime. So they're a little bit more of the budget newspaper, but still a national, well-respected journalistic institution. Um, so maybe you can add them to the list of people who might be able to thrive on this. But, yeah, you're right. There is a question of how many uh, journalistic institutions can actually thrive on this digital subscription model period? How much room is there on the boat? You know, another thing is, I mean, the genie's out of the bottle, right? The consumer is so used to free information and free, really good information. And I was just thinking about this on the way over here. I mean, the whole podcast boom. Do you know how much amazing stuff is out there on podcasts now? Amazing, amazing stuff. Listen to us. But I, <laughs> but I mean it. That It's all free. I mean, this whole new, you know, every, there's right. so much and, free and stuff I out there. I feel like that's a fascinating and very true thing is that the quality of free information is very high. And one of the reasons why people were so shy about asking for digital subscriptions, because everyone knew that, like, why, why would I pay for X when I can get Y for free and Y is just as good as X? Um, in the news business, you know, Bloomberg is a really great example, or the BBC. Bloomberg and the BBC are never going to be asked for subscriptions. They're inc- extremely high quality. And so, you know, there's this there was this idea that if there's a free alternative, then why would people to pay? I think what we have seen with the New York Times and now the Washington Post is that people are willing to pay for things even when there are free alternatives, which are just as good. Yeah, there was a, there was actually an interesting little detail in the study too, which it talked about substitution, right? If you went to the New York Times and you got paywalled out, did you go and look somewhere else for the same story essentially? And found that people didn't. It was this interesting behavioral thing. You would assume people would just go, okay, let me look for the Bloomberg version of this for free. But instead, they just appeared to, or I look for the Washington Post version of this for free. But instead, they they just, you know, would, would, didn't read the, the news. Time. Well, but, yeah. but the thing about that is the reason why people would say, no, I really want to see what the Times has to say about this is because of decades and decades of expensive Incredible journalism. And, you know, and, the, and the new journalism has to pay for that, you know, and branding. But, the, but you know, the New York Times, I would say, you know, a lot of brands in my company, too. I mean, it's built on that kind of quality. And so the model needs to be able to pay for that, to pay for that journalism. Otherwise, the quality will go down and then and then you've lost. It needs to be able to pay for the. It, yeah. The, the, and just wrapping this up, I feel like. What we're talking about here is is legacy brands. The Washington Post has been around for a long time, as is The Guardian. The Economist has been around for 150 years. They have an amazing subscriptions, digital subscriptions business. Um, what's less clear is how many... And there are a few digital companies like The Information, which have decent digital subscription businesses with much, 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 much smaller newsrooms. Right, that's you know, what remains to be seen is whether you can have a digitally native, like non-legacy brand with a large newsroom or whether you even need that. Or, you know, in a digital world, maybe you don't need big newsrooms anymore. Maybe you well, don't depends. need a one-size-fits-all newsroom like the New York Times. And you can just have little bits, you know, of newsletter writers and stuff who get relatively small revenues. But that's OK because they're relatively small. But what's being monetized and what the what the the sales pressure is in scale right now. And so that's why you see so many brands really chasing the traffic numbers because the advertisers want to see the numbers rather than the you know that's why I think any any increased focus on the quality of that readership would would, you know, be more welcoming to a smaller uh, model. But right now everyone is focused on getting as big as possible, as many readers as possible to be able to monetize them. 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, it's time for the numbers round. Lee, what's your number this week? Uh, my number is 25.2, and that is the average P.E. of the S&P 500, and it's well above the long-term average of 16. So that is basically the cost of a dollar of earnings. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, if a company is making a dollar in profits every year, you need to pay $25.20 to buy that company on the stock exchange. It will take you, if they make that money every year, it'll take you 25 years for you to get your money back. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it suggests that the market's overvalued. This is from my colleague Sean Tully's cover story on the promise and the peril of the Trump economy, which just came out. But And he's been long, long been saying that the market's overvalued, uh, Sean. But uh, and it's been that way for about a year. Uh, it's been above. It's, it was about twenty a year ago, but it's come up, and so just something to pay attention to. Good time to IPO if you're if you're smart. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> um, my number is one hundred and thirty six billion. Um, so yeah, we've been talking about companies like that, which are billion dollar companies, multi billion dollar companies. The New York Times is worth two and a half billion dollars. Snap is worth twenty billion dollars. So we'll see what it IPOs at. Airbnb is what thirty billion something yeah, like that. Yeah, thirty. Um, there's a small consumer packaged goods company you might have heard of called Unilever, which is worth one hundred and thirty six billion dollars. That is a big company. And that has recently been the target of a takeover attempt by Kraft Heinz or Heinz Kraft, whichever one they are. Um, And I guess implicitly Warren Buffett has been looking for big elephant hunting targets for a while. I feel like Unilever is a classic Warren Buffett company. Unilever, you know, it's so interesting. Paul Pullman, the CEO, has been on this real mission to lead with sort of He's put in place all these values around sustainability and all these other things. And the point being, this is doing good business by doing well. And it's he's a lot of people say that he has really put his money where his mouth is for almost a decade now. And so it would be sort of a shame for business at large to see that get um, diminished in any because, way. Because Kraft Heinz is run by a bunch <laughs> yeah. of Brazilians who really don't care about that kind of thing. <laughs> They're ruthless. They're ruthless. Yeah. All right, Jordan, do you have a number? My number is uh, $7,700. Um, that is how much more a the median family, white family with less than a high school education is worth than the median black family that has at least some college education. Um, so again, if you're a white family um, and you like have not gone to not finished high school, not gone to college, you're uh, the 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 fiftieth percentile. You're worth eighteen thousand eight hundred dollars. If you're a black family and you have some college, you're you know the parents have some college education. You're worth eleven thousand one hundred dollars. And so this is just a really I think interesting and kind of really sad illustration of the black-white wealth gap in this family where you can be a black family that's more educated, that has made the right decisions in life, and essentially because of the legacy of things like housing policy, white families who don't even make it through high school, through 12th grade, uh, you know, are going to be richer, just like straight up. We have a long way to go in this country. Yeah. So that's it for 
us this week, Lee Gallagher. You are the most wonderful person. We love you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Um, one more last plug for your book. What's it? The, the, oh, by me or by you? Yeah, by you. There's right. no one else here with a book. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it. My book is The Airbnb Story, How Three Ordinary Guys Disrupted an Industry, Made Billions, and Created Plenty of Controversy. I love those long subtitles. And it's on especially in stores w- now. Especially when they <laughs> use the word disruption. I know. But uh, they really did. They really did. They disrupted. I we never to think even, of another word for it. We never change. even got know. into the whole disruption co- conversation and whether or not they actually disrupted the hotel industry. But they maybe, did and they are. They did and they are. I wish maybe we could talk about that. Yeah. If if you ever come back, which we very much hope that you I would will, love to. we can we can have that conversation some other time. So Lee, thank you very much for coming. Uh, thanks also to Zach Dynasty, the producer, the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Write to us. Our email is slatemoney at slate dot com. Check out the whole Panoply roster at iTunes dot com slash panoply and we will talk to you next week on sleep money could i say i can't relate to that all i do is pray for that this is city god told me go and make it at i got a date with destiny i'm running late for that grab a paper hey kid you gotta pay for that the new york times